remember on the schoolyard when one kid would call another a name and they would intelligently respond with, I know you are, but what am I? (laughs) And then I'm rubber, you're glue, whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you. This is how the author of the book that I'm using to kind of help guide my study for this sermon series, um, J.R. Daniel Cook, describes what's happening in Rome right where we are right now. He titles this section of our book as everything, by which I mean you people, has gone to poop. Or we're in this together. (laughs) There's a long history between Jews and Gentiles, which is everyone. Remember, like, there's not Baptist, there's not atheist, there's, we, at this point in time, you mark them as Jews or Gentiles. But here specifically, uh, talking about Jews who don't believe in Jesus, Jews who do believe in Jesus, and let me I keep using that phrase because that's our common language for today, who believe in Jesus. It wasn't, I mean, they're close enough to the life of Jesus that they, they believe in him because many of them saw him. But these are Jews who worship Jesus or Jews who do not worship Jesus and Gentiles who worship Jesus. There are generations of distrust between all of these groups of people. There's been bloodshed and violence. There's been prejudice on both sides that have limited and created problems for the other one. Kirk, our author, says, by the time this letter ends, we'll see this heartfelt conviction uh, is that only a worshiping community consisting of both Jews and Gentiles can appropriately manifest the saving work God has done through Jesus. But to get there, he's going to have to knock down the walls of tribal loyalty and prejudice. And to join Paul in his journey, we're going to need a little bit of, I know you are, and so am I. In the last half of Romans chapter 1, Paul, in order to try to create some common ground with the Jews that he's going to start by speaking to, he goes into his Jewish identity. Now, we had in uh, chapter 16 uh, of chapter, verse 16 of chapter 1, the for I'm not ashamed of the gospel um, passage that um, that we, one of the ones that we quoted last week that's really popular. Um, and then Paul goes on to talk about, kind of to give a a decreation story, a fall of creation story that probably wasn't unique to him. Um, Paul, oftentimes we we take things that Paul says uh, like here and like when Paul is talking about household codes, about who should honor whom in a house, he's quoting something somewhere else. Now, that's what he's probably doing here because there's a similar sort of list that appears in um a book called The Wisdom of Solomon that's in those extra books that we talked about last week. He lists all of these sins of those that don't believe in God, but rather begin to worship creation instead of worshiping God. And for Paul, this is a decline of civilization kind of story. I want to read that to you um, so you get the full effect of what Paul is setting up. 
Uh, This is uh, chapter 1, verse 24. Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the degrading of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also the men, giving up natural intercourse with women, were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameless acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they didn't see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. They know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Whew, my goodness. I mean, that's a list. I like how in the middle of that, like, (laughs) the the one that gets me is... um, Uh, rebellious towards parents. I mean, like, Paul is just throwing everything against this group of people in this, in this, uh, like, claim that he's making towards the Jews. And a lot of sermons that happen in a lot of churches, a lot of the churches I grew up in, this is where we would stop in this list. And the preacher would rail against the people who don't worship God. And all of the things that they do that are supposed to be against God. That's not the point that Paul is making, though. It doesn't just stop there. Remember, we add the chapters in. Because where Paul goes next is to say, just the moment that the Jews are like, yeah, you tell us. Like, they're awful, aren't they? Those Gentiles, they're awful. We can't worship with them. They're all those things that you just listed. And Paul, in turn, in chapter 2, in multiple places, goes on to say something like this. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in judgment, or for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. You say we know that God's judgment on those who do such things is in accordance with truth. Do you imagine whoever you are, that when you judge those who do such things and yet you do them yourself, you will escape the judgment of God? What Paul is saying is, you think you're perfect? You're not. You're not. He brings them in with that othering of this other group of people and then says, yeah, samesies, (laughs) you're all the same. We're all guilty. Now, I do want to, for just a moment, um, go back to, because this is one of the five passages, and it is just five passages in the whole of the Bible, that um, we have in church history, uh, more recent history, um, used against um, people who are in same-sex relationships. 
and we say that this is this is listed here with all these other awful things and therefore that's awful I think you probably know what I believe. I mean, I married Mandy and Heather, but let me give you another way to understand this. Paul could have never imagined a same-sex couple that was loving and caring and committed to one another. That didn't exist in his day. What did exist were abusive relationships of same-sex individuals where one person had power over the other. What did exist were, remember, these are people who began to worship creation and not worship God. It was people who were worshiping in temples that worshiped other gods, that worshiped creation, where temple prostitution would happen. And that tended to be these kinds of abusive relationships that were same-sex. In the same way that Paul could not imagine me, a woman who is educated with a doctorate and a master's degree and ordained, being able to preach on a Sunday morning to a group of people, he could not have imagined that. So what he's speaking about are abusive relationships. He's speaking against manipulative relationships and relationships and prostitution that came out of temple worship. We cannot take this and apply it on what we have today because it's not the same. This whole list, again, could be one of those scary kind of Puritan-style sermons. But it's, it's not. One that if we often just pluck it out of context, it looks like Paul is bringing hell and damnation on all of us. But it's actually the act exact opposite. It would be as if someone said to a group of extremists from either political party uh, that there was a long list of everything that they believe the other side has done wrong, everything that makes them immoral, everything that makes them selfish and unholy. And just when the people are saying, yeah, stick it to them, they're awful. Paul turns around and says, I know this is what you think of them. And this is why you're no better than people who do this because of your judgment. Because we know that Paul is just getting them riled up, putting them in a position where they won't be able to back out of it as they agree with him. But because of the way that Paul talks later about Gentiles, and and even as he flips this on the Jewish people in this text, we know that this that's not the point. To just stick with this list of what we would use to other people is missing the point. The point is grace. The entire point is the the last half of chapter 2 where he reminds the Jews that they are not perfect. They judge while they do things that are against the will of God. Romans 3.23, which is, I talked about a few weeks ago, the Romans road, how we try to, we use to, to say, to bring somebody to being a Christian. Um, part of a part of a sentence is what Romans 3.23 is. Um, and it says, since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us. We like to move through to the next stop on the Romans road. We point back to that long list of sins and think that once we have Jesus, we're justified in in pointing back to that list. 
to the things that those sinful people that are other than us are doing. And it leads to more and more division. And and this is the so what. Why does it matter how we read this portion um, of scripture? This is the, the so what portion of our sermon today. It matters because too often we use scripture half-heartedly, plucking what we want to justify ourselves rather than give grace. This kind of thinking led to the Holocaust. On the website for the Anne Frank House, it says, Hitler was born in Austria in 1889. He developed his political ideas in Vienna, a city with a large Jewish community, but also a large hatred by the mayor, um, who was very anti-Jewish. During world, the First World War, Hitler was a soldier in the German army. At the end of the war, he and other German soldiers like him couldn't get over the defeat of the German Empire. And the German army command spread the myth that the army hadn't lost the war on the battlefield, but because they had been betrayed. Hitler bought into the myth that Jews and communists had betrayed the country and brought in a left-wing government to power, and they wanted to throw in the towel. By blaming the Jews for the defeat, Hitler created a stereotypical enemy. In the 1920s and early 30s, the defeated country was still in economic decline. According to the Nazis, expelling the Jews was the solution to the problem in Germany. It was on this platform that Hitler was voted into power in 1932. And after he came to power, the laws and measures against the Jews increased. In the end, it ended with the Holocaust, the murder of six million European Jews. Mauricio Garcia, who opened fire in an outlet mall just recently, had neo-Nazi tattoos. The man who killed eight people at the Dallas area mall wore an extremist insignia, posted racist and misogynistic creeds, and praised Nazis online. Garcia also wore a patch during the killing spree that said, RWDS, an acronym for Right Wing Death Squad. And while the article I was reading said that police have yet to announce a motive for the attack, journalists have uncovered a trove of social media posts in which the gunman fantasized about violence and glorified the Third Reich. Recently, here in Johnston County and other parts of our state, little plastic bags of anti anti-Semitic material filled with rat poison were left in driveways in our neighborhoods. The cards blamed Jewish people for the downfall of America, the problems with our, um, our every financial problem we face. It accused Democrats of being in cahoots with these Jews and even accused them all of pedophilia. On a different note, just this week, a bill was passed in Florida that would allow health care providers to deny treatment based on a conscious-based objection, which they defined as a sincerely held religious, moral, or ethical belief. 
While the le legislation says that health care providers can't use it to deny care based on a patient's race, color, religion, sex, or national origin, attempts by Democratic lawmakers to extend those protections to gender identity and sexuality failed. This is happening all over our country. Bills that are being passed because we've othered someone else. It's happening here in North Carolina. It says that I'm right. The way that I see the world is the right way. And my religious beliefs trump everything, including someone else's medical care. A friend of mine, Pastors Williamsburg Baptist Church in Williamsburg, Virginia. This is a church that openly supports LGBTQ um, has some banners and flags that hang out in front. They've in the past had those torn down or defaced. Just 10 days ago on May 4th, the Williamsburg City Police received a bomb threat against the church, a credible bomb threat. Not feeling safe in their buildings, they took to worshiping in the park last Sunday. About the incident, Art, the pastor wrote, how we disagree says a lot about our faith and provides a powerful witness to those outside the walls of our churches. I am grateful for Williamsburg Baptist and how they're living out their call, even when threatened by those who violently disagree. Love one another as I have loved you. May we live up to this lofty command. This way of understanding ourselves as right and others as wrong is foundational to everything. It leads to discrimination of all kinds. This word from Paul is alive and well, not because it gives us the right to point fingers and yell at others or, or worse, um, but because it challenges us. It challenges that part within us that wants to say, I am better than you. I'm superior. <laughs> I'm the king of the hill and what I say goes. Rachel Held Evans wrote, the truth is you can bend scripture to say just about anything you want it to say. You can bend it until it breaks. For those who count the Bible as sacred, interpretation is not a matter of whether to pick and choose, but how to pick and choose. We're all selective. We all wrestle with how to interpret and apply the Bible to our lives. We all go to the text looking for something, and we all have a tendency to find it. So the question we have to ask ourselves is this, are we reading with the prejudice of love, with Christ as our model, or are we reading with prejudices of judgment and power, self-interest and greed? Are we seeking to enslave or liberate, burden or set free? If you are looking for Bible verses with which to support slavery, you will find them. If you are looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to oppress women, you will find them. If you're looking for verses for which to honor and celebrate women, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to wage war, there are plenty. If you are looking for reasons to promote peace, there are plenty more. If you are looking for an outdated and irrelevant ancient text, that's exactly what you'll see. If you're looking for truth, that's exactly what you will find. This is why there are times when the most instructive question to bring to the text is not, what does this say, but what am I looking for? 
The point is not the list of sins, but rather to remind us we're all in this together. If we stop at one point, if we choose to ignore parts of the scripture, it justifies this kind of me and you against each other sort of behavior. It allows us to create an other. And the whole point of these passages is that there is not an other. I know this has been heavy and intense so far, but I think the extreme prevalence of othering that we see in our world today shows a deep level of pain we all feel, a pain when the world doesn't seem fair, when the world seems overwhelming and just too much, a pain that comes when others harm or hurt us, even in ways they don't intend to, or sometimes when they do. There's pain in being human that says, you will never be enough, never measure up. You cannot earn enough or achieve enough or throw the most Pinterest-worthy parties and holidays. There's a pain that comes from feeling like you're too much for this world. And the words of Paul say that when we feel that pain, we need to lean into grace. Grace for ourselves and grace for other people. We are to be reminded that God has seen us right where we are, right in the place where we're lacking, right in the middle of our failures, right in the place of our pride. Jesus meets us there. The point is the grace. The point is Jesus. Rachel Held Evans also wrote, the apostles remembered what Many modern Christians tend to forget that what makes the gospel offensive isn't who it keeps out, but who it lets in. Remember this morning that that includes you. But also remember this morning that includes the one you would want to keep out. Will you pray with me? God, this world feels hard. It feels like we're constantly being measured against one another, that we're always trying to fight for our place, fight for what we need, fight for what we want. We are told that we are never going to be good enough, that we're too much, that we're not enough somehow all at the same time. God, our human nature, you know, is to set ourselves apart from other people. It is to other, other people. God, give us the courage to accept your grace in the moments where we feel like we are not enough. And give us the courage to extend that grace to others. God, help us to build the bridges between those who would other people. Help us to have the courage to say the kinds of things that they need to hear, to question their beliefs, to question the the kind of prejudices that they hold. That is so hard when we live life up close with other people. God, may we be people that know that 
We are enough just because of your grace. That right where we are this morning, God, you see us. Jesus, you are with us. Let us find peace in that. It's in your name we pray. Amen.